1984, in his acceptance speech for the Republican Party's nomination for President of the United States, Ronald Reagan famously referred to the United States as a city set on a hill. It was, of course, not an original thought or an original quote. It had been used by other people before him, including John F. Kennedy in a speech he had once given. But even before that, it was first, of course, a phrase that was used by our Lord in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He, of course, was not talking about the United States of America when he spoke of a city set on a hill, but rather was speaking about the church. It was the church, he said, that is to be a city set on a hill. You are the light of the world, he says. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. That thought and those words provide us with a backdrop for the passage of Scripture that we're going to take a look at tonight. It's printed on your bulletin here. If we could read together these words from John 17, verses 13 through 19. And as we read them, let us remember that these words are part of Christ's high priestly prayer. And these words are the inspired word of God. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not out of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us in your word. We thank you for this great passage of scripture that we've been looking at over these past weeks in John 17, this great prayer that you prayed for your disciples and for those who would follow after them, for all who would be members of the body of Christ. We thank you that we are counted amongst that number and we pray that just as you prayed for us there, that we would understand your words better, that we would see you better, that we would be transformed into your likeness, that we would be more like Christ Jesus, and whose name we pray. Amen. We see many things in this world that ought to dismay us. They ought to bother us. They ought to uh, 
be disconcerting to us. It happens in the news all the time. We see, see terrible things, the results of sin. But I'm not just talking about those things, the murders and the, the robberies and those types of things. We see political decisions that go the other way, you know, the, the way that is opposite of how we think they should go. But beyond that, we also see a general cultural consciousness that seems to be more and more sliding away from where it is supposed to be, according to God's word, that is more and more contrary to what Jesus would have us be. It can be dismaying at times. It can be upsetting at times, but I would argue that we ought not to be surprised by it. I've heard this example before. I might have shared it with you before, but it's worth sharing again if I did. We can look at the people of God in the Old Testament. We can see them in different scenarios. We can see the life that they lived in Jerusalem as the people of God, following God as they are supposed to, closely walking with him, life in Jerusalem. Worshiping as they're supposed to worship. Now I know it wasn't always quite like that exactly. There was much unfaithfulness in Jerusalem as well. But let's just use that as one picture. Another picture is we see the people of Israel now, now having been carried away and come back and intermingled. And, and in life in Samaria, we see people who, who have some remnant of what it was like to worship God. They, they have this cultural memory, if you will, of what it is to worship God, but they do it in the wrong place, in the wrong ways, and they've got everything kind of mixed up, and so there is some vague shadow of what it's supposed to be like, but they've really got a whole lot of stuff wrong. And then there's Babylon, where the people are carried off into exile, and they lived amidst people who weren't even close to what they were supposed to be. They lived totally contrary to the laws of God there. And they had to live in this land of exile amidst people who were not just not desiring to walk with God, but they were actively rebelling against him at every step. And we think, well, which one is most analogous of life today here in the United States? Which one is most like the life we live? Well, it's certainly not life in Jerusalem, where everybody's living the way they're supposed to, worshiping God just right. And perhaps it was once like that life in Samaria, where there was a cultural memory, a shadow of how things are supposed to be, even if it wasn't exactly right, it wasn't as it was supposed to be there, seemed to be. But now I would argue we're more like life in Babylon. That's where we live now. We live in Babylon. We are a people in exile as the church, living amidst people who are different, people who are enemies of God, just as we once were. And so the question is then, how do we live? How do we live as people in Babylon? Jesus' prayer helps us understand our situation here. It was applicable to his disciples. It's applicable to us. We are exiles in a foreign land. I think of the words of Paul, 
in Philippians 3. He says, beginning in verse 18, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Sound familiar? That's the world in which we live here today. But what Paul said then, we can also say now. Verse 20, but our, our citizenship amidst these people who live with their God being their belly, their glory, their shame, their, their mindset on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We await on his return. We wait on him coming back and making all things right. We wait for him to come back and take away the pain and the suffering and the sickness and the sin and to transform us and our world so that it will be as he would have it, as it is meant to be. But before he had left, he prayed. He prayed for his disciples. He prayed for you. And he prayed for me. And he said in verse 13, But now I am coming to you, speaking to God, and these things I speak in the world. He says, I speak these in the world. I speak these while I am still in the world. And why does he do that? He says, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Excuse me. Sorry. That they may have their jo my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus speaks this way elsewhere. In John 15, verse 11, he says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is what Jesus longs for his people. He longs for us to have joy. Sometimes we think of God in a different way. I think our culture perhaps makes us think of this way. But we think of God as some kind of cosmic killjoy sitting up there in heaven, right? And he's just waiting for somebody to have, have fun, right? And, and then he sees them and, and says, I, I heard somebody say this once. I thought this was great. He said, yeah, he's looking for somebody to have fun. He says, says oh, there's, there's somebody having fun. Fun, fun, F-U-N. The first three letters of funeral, zip. You know, he's, he's looking to zap them just because they had fun, you know. And that's, that's just a terrible view of God. It's a terrible view of God. God is not some kind of cosmic killjoy. He's not looking to, to eradicate all fun and to make us just follow rules and be miserable all the time. That's, that's a picture some people have of God, isn't it? They think he's just, he's just out to take away all of our fun, but that's not what God is wanting to do. God wants us to have a joyful life. He desires that. He longs for us to have joy. That's why Jesus says here and in other places, like we mentioned, that he is looking to provide for our joy. And here he says that he has spoken these words that his disciples may have his joy fulfilled in themselves. Now we need to understand that joy isn't necessarily equal to happiness. What joy is, 
is, is really more a, of a true, truly meaningful life. A full life. A life as it is meant to be in following God. Because that's what we are created to do, isn't it? it we, are, we are created to follow God, to walk with God, to honor God, to, to glorify Him, and to find our joy in Him. That's why we can, we can say that, that there are times that we have trials and temptations and difficulties and pain and suffering, and even in the midst of these, we can still have joy. That's why James can say in, in the first chapter of his epistle that, that we should count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's not our first reaction, is it? To count trials as joy. I mean, trials are trials. They're not joyful, but James says count it as joy because of what they're going to do in you, because of what they're going to create in you, because of the growth that will be experienced by you as a result of those trials. You see, God doesn't send these trials your way for no reason, but because he means to use them for a purpose in your life to accomplish something to do something in and through you. And so he sends them your way. So even in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the pain and the suffering and the difficulties, which are very, very real, I mean not in any way to minimize those things. They are very real. And yet God says, even in the midst of those things, you can have joy. Because I'm doing something here and I am with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I was awed at the living example of this in Lynn, just in visiting her the other day. I went to visit her, and here she is in a hospital bed, having gone through this, this terrible situation, and her face is beaming with smiles. As I come walking in, she's just so joyful. And it's an amazing thing. And I mentioned to her how amazing it was that she could be so joyful in the midst of this situation. She said, God is with me. God is with me. This is hard, but God is with me. And that's a reason to be joyful. And yes, it is. Yes, it is. And so Jesus provides for our joy. How does he do it? Well, well, one of the primary ways he does it is through his word. We see in John 6, Jesus presents a difficult teaching, and many people disperse. They scatter, they leave, they desert him. They say, this is too hard. And Jesus turns to his disciples there, and he says to them, would you leave too? And Simon Peter, acting as the spokesman, as the representative of the twelve, says to him in John 6, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You see, this, this life, this eternal life, this abundant life, this, this full life, this joyful life that we would have comes through your words through your speaking. 
in Philippians, referred to often as the epistle of joy, chapter 2, verse 16, tells us that we are to hold fast to the word of life. That's a phrase that we find also in 1 John 1, verse 1. Again, speaking of Jesus and, and of his teachings, it says how, how we have looked upon and have touched with our hands these things concerning the word of life. There is life and joyful life at that that comes from God's word. It presents it, it, it produces it in us. And so for those of us who follow God, those of us who walk with him, who long to know him better, for those of us who can truly say that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, it is truly said of us that we can, we can be those who would say God's word produces joy in us. Because in his word comes his promise and his person and who he is. And all these things, and it's a wonderful thing to have this joy that comes from it. But that's not all that God's word produces. You see, while it is producing joy from within the church, it's doing another thing. It at the same time produces hatred from without. You see, while Jesus says in verse 13, these things I speak that they may have my joy filled in themselves. In verse 14, he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Depending on our perspective, the word of God, the promise of God, the the word of life is a wonderful thing bringing us joy. Or if you come from outside of the people of God, It is a word of conviction. It is a word of condemnation, ultimately. And it produces hatred. This is the way the gospel works. This is the way the the word of God works. If we look throughout scriptures, we can see that this is how it is in many places. 1 Peter chapter 2 talks about how the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. He's quoting, actually, from Isaiah 8. But he says it's interesting, isn't it? It's a a cornerstone. It's the thing upon which the church is built. It is this, this wonderful, strong, mighty rock upon which everything is built. It is integral. It's so important. It's a good thing. Or a rock of stumbling, you know, a rock that you trip over. Oops. It depends on the perspective that you're coming from. We see this throughout God's word. I could give you other examples, but we don't have time. But Jesus says, I've given them your word. and The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You see, he says they, he's talking about his disciples, he's talking about us. He's saying, those who are found in me are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We are identified with Christ Jesus. We find our identity in him. And what a wonderful thing that is. Though it is true that just as the world rejected Christ, so it will reject us because we have standards of holiness, because we believe in right and wrong, because we think that there are certain ways that we must live our lives in order to be right with God. 
And that is an unpopular message in the world today. It's unpopular in a world that wants to tell us that we can do whatever we want to do and it doesn't really matter. You just decide yourself. But we know that not to be true. And so the world will reject us. But though the world rejects us, the Father accepts us. Not because we do all the right things, but because Christ Jesus has done all the right things on our behalf. And we find our identity in him. You see, that's the key. Is where is our identity found? And Jesus says very clearly here that, that we are in him, we are with him. Whether that be for the good attitudes or the bad attitudes. And so Jesus says, I, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. It's interesting, he doesn't say, withdraw them. You know, it's a hard place to be in this world. The world hates them. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, take them out, make it easy on them. No, he says, it will be hard. You will face persecution. You will face difficulties. There will be times that you are forced to stand up and make an unpopular declaration. There are times that you will have to go places and do things that will be hard. There will be times you have to pass up opportunities to do things you would otherwise do because you need to be faithful to the calling on your life that you have through Christ Jesus. Jesus says, guard them. We pray it in the Lord's Prayer, don't we? We, we, we pray that deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. Some versions of the Bible suggest it actually is better. Deliver us from the evil one. And that is what we need. We need deliverance. We need protection. We need strength. We need endurance. That's what we need because we need to live here. We need to not be pulled out because there's still a job for us to do. Because we're not only exiles in this land, we're also ambassadors. We're ambassadors in this land. Coming back to Philippians 2, where we're told again to hold fast to the word of life. I mentioned that before. Before that, says, do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. You see, as we hold fast to the word of life, we shine. And, you know, if you took a spotlight outside at noon on a sunny day, and you shine the spotlight up in the sky, nobody would be able to see it, even though it's this incredibly bright light. But if it's a pitch black night and there's no lights around for miles and miles and miles, and you pulled out a little pocket flashlight and turned it on, the effect would be great, wouldn't it? And so it is that we who live in a darkened world, by holding fast to the word of light, become that light that shines, that gives guidance, that gives direction, that, that calls people to the holiness of God, that reveals him to them. And God works through us. You see, he has given us, we are told, the ministry of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5, he, 
He says he's done that. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you do not trust in Christ Jesus for your salvation, if today you sit here and you you do not know Jesus as your Savior, you do not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm glad you're here. And we'd like to welcome you to be here every Wednesday night that we meet, every Sunday morning that we meet. Come here and join us for our activities and be with us. But at the same time, I implore you, with the Apostle Paul, be reconciled to God in Christ Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven and earth, on earth that by, by which man must be saved. He is the only means of reconciliation. Admit that you are in need of saving. Admit that you cannot save yourself. Repent and turn to the cross and rejoice in the salvation that is yours in Christ Jesus. If you have done that, if you do trust in Christ Jesus, if you walk with Christ Jesus, if you know that salvation, then certainly there's a responsibility for you too. Responsibility for us to, having been saved, walk in holiness. Jesus says here that he prays for them that they might be sanctified. Sanctified might be one of two things. One thing is to be set apart Certainly we are set apart to be ambassadors, like we said, but also could mean to be holy. We are to grow in holiness. This is not something that we do on our own, but something that Jesus does in and through us. And so we set ourselves apart. We, we strive toward holiness. We trust in him to work through us because he has sent us into the world. He says in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. He sent us out to bear witness to be a holy presence, to be his holy presence. But he has not left us alone. Because he has promised that I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. And what a promise that is. He sends his spirit dwells within us. And for their sake, he says in verse 19, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. You see, though we are exiles and ambassadors in a strange land, actually because we are exiles and ambassadors in a strange land, let us live as salt and light. Let us live according to the truth of God's word. And let us share the good news of Christ Jesus and the joy that is ours in him. Please pray with me. Our Lord, we thank you for the gift of Christ Jesus. We thank you for the forgiveness that we do not deserve that you have yet poured out upon us. And we pray that you would help us to live as you desire. Help us to 
walk with you as we should walk, not by our own strength, but by yours, following your word given to us, that it might direct us, that it might correct us, that it might rebuke us, and that it might give us life. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please rise now and sing with me hymn number 654, Change My